Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name is Brent. And on this episode, we've already went to college. We didn't grow up. We ate some juicy burgers and greasy fries. And now it's our fourth week in a row with the Descendants with SST 145, the two things at once compilation. Yeah. Um, and you know what? I still ain't tired of the Descendants. I'm never getting tired of the Descendants. Four weeks in a row, the same songs. Bring it on. And we've got a special guest, Brent. Yeah. So as I mentioned last week, we've got Mugger on the show today. And it's not, it's very light. I was going to say it's light on Descendants. I don't think the Descendants get a mention at all. I did this interview a couple months ago. I've been trying to get Mugger pretty much since day one. And uh, we've been looking for an episode to drop it in. So we picked this one since, uh, you know, we've already discussed these tracks and, and the parent albums. So hope you enjoy the interview. I know you will. Uh, it's a great one. Yeah. And I mean, this, this actually continues on part of what we have been trying to do. And I mean, it's not easy, especially when you get 145 episodes in, but that is, you know, not just to go through the releases, the artists, but also the story of the label, because that's fundamentally, that's what this is all about. And Mugger really brings um, some additional context and stories to that foundation that we've laid over the, the previous episodes. Uh, very, very cool to have him on the show here. Yeah. Now, Brant, before, before we get to spiels, I think I screwed up last week. Uh-oh. And I don't want to, I don't want to screw up this week because last week we did the bonus fat EP, right? Right. Yeah. And now this is two things at once, right? Okay. So if I'm not mistaken, weren't we last week and all of this week, like, I mean, the entire time in the console, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> yeah. Good point. An extended console. This is like two weeks of comps, oh, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Okay, well, I had to clear the air because, man, I've been, I've been kicking myself all week. I hope that's okay Jeez. that I missed that. Totally slept on that one. Yeah, yeah. Sorry yeah. about that. Not very professional of us, really. No. Well, I was worried you might give me my walking papers, but I got up <laughs> and I checked the Mojack bylaws, and it's true. We are in the comp zone for this episode, so let's do it. Um, now... We should start off with some spiels. Where do you want mm-hmm. to go, Brent? Me first, you first. You first. All right, all right. Um, so I've got just three spiels that I thought, you know, some of our listeners will be interested in as well. So, and I'm not going to call this Watts Up. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. But it is a an update on some Mike Watt happenings because... The, the group with Mike Baguetta and Stephen Hodges, MSSV, they've got a new release out called Main Steam Stop Valve. It's a download or LP edition of 500, eight tracks. And uh, people who, who have been digging the, the Baguetta Watt stuff, uh, like I have, should really mm-hmm. check out this new release as well. Yeah, I'll be checking that out for sure. Yeah. Bit of quick street cred to you, Brant. Remember the band The Zulus that you recommended? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. So The Zulus. I was thinking back, probably along with Tripod Jimmy, probably my two favorite 
COVID recommends from you so far. Really? Yeah. Okay. I, no slight to the the hundreds of other recommends you've made as you've gotten <laughs> shit off your phone, but those two in particular are the ones that I've been going back to, like really up my alley, and I'm just in the mood for that that 80s post-punk vibe. I don't know why, but anyways, the Zulus brand. Uh, if you recall, they have a self-titled 12-inch and a down-on-the-floor LP. Um, Malcolm Travis is in the band. Um, he was also in the band Human Sexual Response and also Sugar. And so it's kind of on the SS tree, right? But there is a new triple CD release, brand new, 2020, by, by the Zulus. No download, no streaming, triple CD only it's called cockfight in the bullring and it's released on turned on sounds records it's released by rich gilbert from the zulus who is also in human sexual response now rich gilbert i didn't know this i had no idea um but he's also he's played with a ton of people he's played with frank black and the catholics he might have been a catholic i haven't checked that yet um also tanya donnelly um, he also sat in with the Lemonheads, a bunch of people. Mm. Now, this three CD set is almost all unreleased tracks. It's got like, oh, wow. yeah, it's got like Fort Apache sessions, uh, a live set from the Rat. So uh, I'm really pumped. Uh, I definitely like ordered this one instantly as soon as I found it. And mm. uh, people should check that out if you like the Zulus. And if you haven't checked out the Zulus, this is a great excuse to check them out um again like if you like that 80s post-punk sound it's on the ss tree and it's good check it out yeah bob mold produced the one record too yeah yeah okay here's my third and final spiel uh, but i want to just check are you ready to get obscure brand always i'm talking really really obscure always how about canadian obscure big time Okay, and I know our listeners love it when we're talking about obscure Canadian punk rock, but what about obscure Quebec post-punk, Brent? Are you in? Ooh, I am all over that. Hey, we got a couple people that checked out our recommend on The Kittens and liked it. Oh, dude, The Kittens rule. This is completely different, but it's obscure Canadian, so let's do it. There's a label hey. that has put out a compilation, so we're in the comp zone. And within the comp zone. Wow. It's a comp called Nome Noma. Quebec. Do the bylaws allow this? The bylaws do. Yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> Mojack bylaws allow this. The comp is called Nome Noma, Quebec Post-Punk and New Wave, 1979 to 1987 on Tresor National Records. Um, hmm. It includes tracks from rare 45s and LPs that are like just insane if you want to buy them individually. The only band that I know on this comp is a band called the Wipers. You know, there's the Canadian Wipers. So I didn't know that. Oh, okay. Well, they, yeah. So they're from Quebec as well. Um, but there's Power Pop, some bands called Magnum and the Chemicals, Punk. That's where the Wipers would fit. Also, Blue Oil is another band on there. Post-punk, there's Vex and Pop Stress. There's Minimal Synth on this. Dark Wave, New Wave. There's 500 copies pressed. 140 gram vinyl. 16 page 
bilingual um, nice. fanzine that comes with it. This is for the ultra obscure Canadian punk completist, and I'm all in. I just love stuff like that. It totally just made me think of that Rocky Mountain Low comp. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. So, and I mean, there's actually a uh, a couple other comps that have come out lately that I'm going to spiel about next week. One about Detroit, one about Cleveland, but that's too much comps for one episode. <laughs> no such thing, man. Yeah. Over to you, Brent. Okay. Ryan, there's a new episode of the Henry and Heidi $1.99 show, and it's on the Teen Idols. And it's really good. Everybody who's listening to this should probably just check that out. Uh, I'm not going to spoil any of the stories, but there's some great ones on there, including a hilarious story about the cramps. Nice. Okay, some props to you, Ryan. I checked out some of your recommends from last week. My last 10. <laughs> the Stump yeah. Rant Edition. Excellent. That's right. Kamikaze Refrigerators, who I actually, I knew I had heard that name before. They're on the Mighty Feeble Comp, New Alliance Records. Aha. Uh -huh. But I had not heard the Happy Thoughts album, and it's really good. Really yeah. enjoyed that. Yeah. Reminded me a lot of the big boys, which you probably, I think, probably said that they would. Yep. Uh, and, of course, I love the big boys, so that's a great recommend. Switch Hitter. F Fur de Lance. Yeah, man. Also really great. Mm -hmm. Need to spend more time with it. Six Toe. Yes. The self-titled record. Just the one record, unfortunately. Yeah. It's really good. Yes. Really got off on the guitar playing on that one. Yes. And I did Custom Floor, Clear Day. Very good. Definitely need to check out their other two records. Yeah, man. Excellent. That's as far as I got so far. What was the one you recommended at the end last week? I checked them out. Uh, Instro, Proggy, was it NY in... Oh, yeah, NY in 64? Yeah. Street cred to you for that one. Dig it. Yeah, I knew you would. Okay, Ryan, I am on the O section of my get this shit off my phone segment. Do we have a name? Yeah, man. What? What is it? Oh man, give me some more recommends. I'm loving it. <laughs> okay, well, here we go. Omni, the album's multitask, Trouble in Mind 2017. I really liked their album that came out on Sub Pop last year uh, called Networker. So I'm going backwards into their catalog they're an indie rock band from atlanta really good 111 heavy desire path is the record they're on that label beyond beyond is beyond which oh. i gen generally try and stay on top of because they release really cool stuff the deloreans yes definite grateful dead influence drummer hans chu has also many great solo records 111 heavy okay here's a here's a cool one I call them O-O-I-O-O, but I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it. I'm not even going to try and say the name of their record. It's brand new on the label Thrill Jockey, who I also try and stay pretty on top of. They release a lot of really interesting things. It's bass, drums, and two guitars. It's kind of all over the place. It's mostly instrumental, but when the vocals do come in, it's very Mike Patton, Yoko Ono uh, school of vocalists. Whoa. It's definitely avant-garde, it's jazzy at times, rockin', lots of interesting sounds, very weird, mostly instrumental. It's cool. Only Living Witness, a Boston band, prone mortal form from 1993. Really awesome hardcore meets kind of traditional metal, but also definitely from the 90s. 
Really great vocals. You should check that record out, Ryan. You might like it. Only Living Witness. Is it like crossover or past crossover? It's more metal than crossover, mm. but also like some helmet vibes to it. Ah, okay. You might like it. Okay. Prone Mortal Form. Only Living Witness. Here's a some more street cred for you, Ryan. One spot. The difference between... Yes. The, this is, of course, the reactivated one-spot fringe head nice. band. At least I think they're still reactivated. One of the two EPs they released since reforming under the abbreviated name. And it's awesome, just like that 1994 album that you recommended to me. So great stuff there. Yeah, man. Okay, here's one that's on the tree, Ryan, the SS tree. One Square Mile. The album's called The System, 2018. Really cool melodic hardcore. John McCree on guitar, who was in a band called War Called Peace, who I don't know anything about, and looks like he was also in the Nip Drivers for a spell. Noel Neville is the vocalist, not sure if he's played with anyone previously, but the rhythm section of One Square Mile is Earl Liberty of the Circle Jerks Ooh. and Saccharine Trust fame, and Rob Holtzman, also of Saccharine Trust and Slovenly. So that's, that's a good one for... Uh, for fans of those guys to check out. And also, speaking of Rob Holtzman, I did the Overpass record, the self-titled one from 1995 on New Alliance Records. Overpass, of course, is the band formed by Slovenly members in 1992 when Slovenly split up. It's Rob, Scott Zeigler, and Tom Watson, who also plays, has played for many years with Mike Watt. They released two great records, and uh, this is the first of those two. Obituary, Cause of Death, their second record, 1990, Florida death metal classic. You would not like that. Occult Akrati, new one. I'm not going to try and say the name of that either. It's in Norwegian. It's their second for Southern Lord. They kind of have like punk roots, but then they have some motorhead and it's all done through a black metal filter. They're like a weirder version of Dark Throne for people that are into that band. Is it, what's it called? Occult Karate? Occult Okrati. Oh, okay. It, it's not a martial arts vibe. No. Okay. No. Got it. Uh, the Outsiders, not the UK band, but they're cool too. This is the Dutch Freak Beat band from the 60s. Strange Things Are Happening is a great comp that I listened to. I undoubtedly got into them through... Uh, reading Ugly Things magazine. Mike Stacks has always been a big champion of that band. Great stuff. Oblivion Seekers. Do you know that band, Ryan? I do. Yep. Yeah. Spirit of America is the record I did on Tim Kerr Records. 1993. Kind of a roots punk band. Almost of an almost an X vibe to it. Yeah. Oracle. There's a bunch of bands with that name. This is a pretty obscure one. Uh, this was a one and done record the bands from jacksonville uh they released one insane record called as darkness reigns in 1993 proggy metal a la early queensreich and watchtower i probably read about them in the mean deviation book which is awesome hmm. here's a recommend for you ryan odd man out again there's a bunch of bands with that name they have this really amazing song called Trial by Fire that's on one of the Thrasher Skate Rock tapes, which is how they came to my attention. And they're also in a Powell Peralta video, Public Domain. Steve Caballero is the guitar player in the band. And their parent, the parent album, their only one, and it's from 1998, 
Uh, the album's on Spotify, by the way, if people have a hard time tracking this down. It's pretty obscure. It's kind of like New Wind era seven seconds. I feel like you've mentioned this before because it really rings a bell, uh, but I got to yeah. check it out again. Yeah, the vocalist Christopher Kisper is just unreal. It's really good. Hmm. Okay, the only ones. I did the Immortal Story, which is a really good best of comp. I truly believe uh, if he wouldn't have lost two decades of his life to addiction, Peter Parrott would be talked about in the same way as someone like Paul Westerberg is today, I think. I think that's legit. Yep. Those yeah. only ones. And I mean, I mean, Westerberg was totally influenced by them too, right? Yeah. And like, like when we were talking about uh, Parrot's new record in one of our best ofs, you know, the best thing about Parrot's later releases is it just sounds so much like him and the only ones. They're awesome. Yeah, for sure. Orth Realm. I think I got into this band because uh, they have a split EP that has artwork by away from Voivod, which is probably what caught my eye. They also have a release on Ipecac called Of, which is a truly insane 45-minute piece of music. I did their 2002 debut. Uh, again, I'm not going to try and pronounce the name of it. It's super long. Uh, just look it up. It's on 3-1-G, which is Justin Pearson from the Locusts label. Uh, so that should give you an indication of what Orth Realm sounds like. It's all instrumental. <laughs> it's The songs are just insane. I did the Ornette Coleman Quartet This Is Our Music record from 1961. Just an awesome jazz record that I often go back to. And Charlie Hayden, father of SST's treacherous jaywalkers, Josh Hayden, is the bass player on that record. Very true. If you have... If you haven't heard our interview with Josh Hayden, go back, episode 126. I did, Ryan, the Omar Rodriguez Lopez album, Telesterian, which is a comp, a two-CD comp. I personally think the man is one of the great musical geniuses of our time. This comp is a great place to start if you want an intro introduction to his pretty daunting solo catalog. Yeah. The guy is crazy pro prolific. He's been pretty quiet for the last couple of years, but he's... Got some new stuff out this year that I haven't checked out yet. This is kind of a best of comp that came out right before he released like 30 albums <laughs> all at once on Ipecac. <laughs> yeah. He's got a yeah. record with uh, Frushante as well. Have you heard that one? Yep. Yeah, I've heard most of his stuff. Some of it's I prefer to others, but uh, this comp's really good. Yeah, it's been hit or miss for me, honestly. I mean, I really do still like some of that at the drive-in stuff and uh the offshoot bands as well some of the omar solo stuff it it's hit or miss for me yeah for sure well when you're that prolific i think that's pretty much yeah a given yeah exactly and when you're that you know all over the map musically as well okay here's another one on the ss tree only crime to the nines I've talked about this band a few times. First of their three records, everyone in the group is in other bands, but vocalist Russ Rankin is probably the most well-known from the band Good Riddance, and their drummer is Bill Stevenson. Yeah. Recorded at the Blasting Room, so you know it sounds amazing. It's melodic at times, but there's also some Black Flag vibes to it. I'm pretty sure one of the Rise Against guys was in there for a while too. I can't remember his name. Yeah, probably. 
Here's another one on the tree, Ryan. Otto's Chemical Lounge. Yes. Speaking of the Zulus, another band from from kind of that Minneapolis scene. I did their self-titled comp, which was released on Terry Kotzman's Garage Door label. It's got their Homestead LP and their Reflex 7-inch on it, plus some unreleased tracks. And they're... All of those records are just steeped in the Minneapolis scene. It's engineered by Steve Felstead, produced by Bob Mould and Grant Hart. Grant does vocals on the full length. Tom Hazelmeyer plays bass on the single. Yep. Great stuff. Again, they kind of sounded like the big boys a little bit. A little bit. They're, they're, they were funky now and then. Yep. Yep. Okay, Aranzi Pazuzu, a Finnish band. I've been trying to get into them for a while. Despel Magazine are just huge champions of this band. They're like psychedelic black metal, but that doesn't really do them justice. They're doomy at times. They have a lot of cool atmospheric stuff. Hawkwind is for sure an influence, as are the Melvins and Neurosis. Cosmonument from 2011 is the one I did, although I see they have a new one out, so I'll be checking that out. ASAP. And finally, Ryan, I did the Oil Tasters self-titled 1982 record on Thermidor, which is Joe Carducci's label. Yep. And I was trying to read up on the Oil Tasters a little bit, and I couldn't really find a whole lot. So I hit up Joe Carducci for a little info, and here's what he sent me. Right on. Yeah. Here's what Joe, Joe says. The Oil Tasters put out their first 45 what's in your mouth with get out of the bathroom if i recall in 1980 and systematic carried it systematic of course was the distributor that joe carducci worked for i think they just sent us a sample and we liked it and ordered it a couple times maybe sold 125 total sometimes jim nash at wax track chicago told me about localish bands whose records we might want to to distribute Once on a trip to Chicago while still at Systematic, I saw them play at Cubby Bear and got to talk to them a bit. I gather saxophonist Caleb had been something like James Chance, a.k.a. James White's saxophone roadie slash understudy, or was just inspired by him when he was still living in Milwaukee as James Siegfried before he went to New York and formed the Contortions, etc. Rich, on bass and vocals, probably wrote most of the tunes, and he later moved to New York City himself. I forget the drummer's name, it's Guy Hoffman, by the way, but I believe he went on to play with the Bodines, which he did. They also did a second 45, that's when when the brick goes through the window, which we also distributed, and then by 1981, John Beauchard and I had the Thermidor label going, and we talked to the oil tasters about putting out an album. They didn't tour much, which was the usual for those days, so the album just did okay. We probably pressed a thousand, did 150 promo mailings, and sold the rest in three years or so. And here's the interesting part, Ryan. Check this out. Joe says, Once I was down in LA at SST, Black Flag got into that second 45 during the Unicorn Injunction period. They briefly thought of covering it on a 45 as one of their experiments of what or who Black Flag could be under the injunction against recording. Black Flag also asked the oil tasters to tour with them for for some Midwest dates in 1982, but they had just broke up. I talked to Caleb on the phone from SST and encouraged them to do it, if possible, but he called back after talking to the guys and they passed on it. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. 
that's it, Ryan. Those are my get my shit off my phone <laughs> spiels. Are you done? Are you done spieling? I'm done spieling. Okay. Well, hey, before we go to the history lesson, I actually had a spiel request of you. Okay. Could you uh, could you spiel for people about uh, David Cusworth? Dave Cusworth, yeah. Well, he died yesterday. Yeah, man. I kind of, you know, what? I don't know. He's a big deal for you, right? And so he is. Yeah, he he is. I couldn't let you go on without uh, mentioning <laughs> it. And I want you to also um, part of the spiel request is to recommend for uh, the dudes and dudettes out there for some entry Cusworth albums. Okay. Well, Dave Cusworth. Um, but tell, but tell people about him. Okay. Well, he was in a bunch of bands in, you know, he was, had a band called the rag dolls. TVI, I think was his first band, his punk band. Then he had a band called the rag dolls. Uh, then he played in the dogs to more. He's a, you know, he's a rocker, like a Keith Richards style rocker. And then in the eighties, he hooked up with Nikki Sutton and they formed the Jacobites and released some amazing records on again, off again. Uh, you know, over the years. My favorite of which is probably, I would say, either Howlin' Good Times or God Save Us Poor Sinners, which is the tour we saw them on. Yeah. And that's when I got hooked on on uh, the music of Nikki Sudden and Dave Cusworth and the Jacobites. He's got many great solo albums and bands. The Bounty Hunters was a band he had for a while. The Dave Cusworth Group. There's a couple of really great comps what's it called in life get some gone again or something like that a lot of his stuff is on the amazing british label label easy action uh they've recently reissued a lot of his solo records uh but there's a a new double lp it's two actually two separate lps volume one and two call and they're called the world of dave cusworth they just came out i think last year they're both excellent they kind of span his entire career and uh another guy gone too young he just released a great record last year with this spanish band called los topper that was in my top 10 love dave cusworth uh, nikki sudden of course died i don't know 10 years ago or more so it's too bad but yeah did you ever see Sudden or Cusworth other than the time we saw them as the Jacobites. Did you ever have the chance? No, never. Oh. I wish I would have. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I, I bet you do. Um, but I still, I still remember that show. I was really, I don't know, uneducated at that time in terms of that type of music. And it was like, what's with all these, like, what's with all the scarves, you know, like <laughs> what, what, what's with the hats and the scarves? Like what is going on? Like we're in this small Canadian prairie city, uh, where you and I met each other and where I grew up and we're, I believe it's actually like during that very brief moment where you were, you and I were booking together, it might've been yep. right after I retired from that brief moment when I was booking with you. And, uh, I was like, what the hell is this? And I had, I had no idea, you know, I, it, it didn't sink in as much for me as it did for you. I know that. But when I, when I read the sad news, I was like, you know what? I want to get you to, uh, give me some homework and uh, yeah. thank you for that. 
Yeah. The interesting thing, well, thanks for asking. The interesting thing about that tour is I booked it through Greg Shaw. He booked that tour. Nice. Yeah. Like by phone. This is pre-internet. <laughs> Not by Telefax? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. All right. Did you get it off your chest? Are we done all the spiels now? All right, man. Do you have your Jordache jeans on? Do you have your pretty long hair? No, because I'm not a loser. I'm not... <laughs> all right, man. Are you ready for two things at once? I am. Let's do it. History lesson, part one. All right. So, again, we've been through these tracks, right? We, uh, we went through, in the last few weeks, Milo Goes to College, the Fat EP, the Ride the Wild 7-inch, and of course, the, the global probing track is from the Chunks comp, which we also uh, have done previously on the show. Um, you know, I was trying to think, like, what can I... Because it's hard to find anything specific about this comp. Everything is about the stuff that's on it. And I kept coming back to um, what I mentioned, I think, on the Milo Goes to College episode about how, like, this is just the the classic intro to the descendants that so many people like myself got it's a great intro to the band um and i mean i mean i think it was only released on cd and cassette first only on cassette on new alliance as uh, new alliance 12 and then sst like a year later or two years later on cd and cassette like but this is the one Like, you found this, at least where I grew up, you found this one more than any other Descendants uh, release. And uh, it's it's the yeah. same CD that I bought probably when I was in high school that I have today. And, uh, yeah, and I love it for that reason. Same with me. Hey, um, yeah, it's a essential comp for sure. Uh, Ryan, I wrote, I did a little thing on Mugger. Oh, cool. Since to... I'm assuming everybody listening to this knows who Mugger is, but just in case they don't, I thought I'd spiel about Mugger a little bit. Perfect. Okay, Steve Corbin, a.k.a. Mugger. As you're about to hear in the interview, uh, he met Greg Ginn uh, as a teenage runaway and started working for him at his SST Electronics Company, which existed prior to the record label and for a brief period uh, existed parallel to the label. He went on all the early Black Flag tours as a roadie and did some front of house stuff. And he formed his, what we call in Canada, a pig fuck band, the Nig Heist. (laughs) Yeah, we do. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Their Discogs page calls them the most explicit and vile musical act to ever exist. (laughs) (laughs) So their recordings, um, speaking of Thermidor... Joe Carducci's label, they released a one, a single-sided 7-inch on Thermidor in 1982 uh, with a etching on the B-side, and then they released that sing, same song again, it's called Walking Down the Street, as the B-side of the Minutemen's Bean Spill EP, also on Thermidor, Thermidor, also in 1982. And then in 1984, they released their full-length album Snort My Load on Thermidor. Uh, the the band for that recording is Dave O'Clausen, a.k.a. Dave the Driver, who roadied for Black Flag on a lot of those tours and for the Meat Puppets for many years. Who He was also in Tr- Tom Tricoli's Dog. And Spot, the uh, SST producer. 
most of the songs are credited to Mugger and various other musicians from from the scene. Greg Ginn, Chuck Dukowski, uh, Chuck Biscuits, Merrill Ward, Des Kadena, Jack Brewer. Uh, members of the touring party on any given tour would make up the band, often performing in wigs and cheesy rocker clothes and sometimes completely naked. Members included uh, the people I just mentioned. Uh, Bill Stevenson played guitar in the Nick Heist. Uh, D. Boone, Spot, Davo, uh, and apparently at some point even Ian Mackay played in the Nick Heist. Wow. I wonder if that band, like... Could it could it even be a thing in the day of the internet? I wonder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, all of that stuff that I just mentioned, by the way, was released by Drag City in 1997 as a compilation with some unreleased studio tracks and a second CD of live stuff compiled by Henry Rollins from various yeah. shows that he taped. <laughs> and again, speaking of Rollins and his tape archive... He, on this $1.99 show, he's pulling out cassette tapes of, like, Teen Idol's demos. Teen Idol's, he recorded, like, every show. Like, I can only imagine what kind of live tapes he has in his Oh, yeah, I'm sure it's insane. We should mention, too, that that Nig High stuff has got some choice Raymond Pettibone artwork on it, too. It does, yep. And as a reward for the long hours and hard work Mugger put in at SST, Greg Ginn and Chuck Dukowski gave him 25% ownership of the label. In 1984, he came off the road with Black Flag to concentrate on SST, handling much of the day-to-day operations along with Joe Carducci, and he was also the accountant for the label. He was later bought out by Greg and Chuck, and he used the money to invest, later becoming an independently wealthy computer industry mogul. So he's had quite the story from teenage runaway to, you know, self-made, uh, self-made millionaire. Yeah, it definitely comes through, uh, you know, not just in that description, but in the interview, the work ethic, right? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. You want to throw it over to Mugger? Sure. All right. We're joined on the podcast today by Mugger. Mugger, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. I'm wondering if you can take me back to where you grew up. You were from Long Beach, I believe not Hermosa. Yeah, actually, I, there's a lot of small cities in LA, and I actually grew up in a city called Artesia, which is like, a, it's kind of like a get, sort of like a barrio with probably around 70% Hispanic. Not the nicest neighborhood to grow up in. Tell me more about that. Well, uh, my mother was Hispanic. She was a single mother, and, and she raised uh, three of my, uh, I have a brother and a sister, and she, so she raised us there. Around age 14, you, I guess, ran away from home and went to Hollywood. Is it true you started hanging around with the germs a little bit? Was that kind of your entry point into the punk scene? Yeah, so I have a friend. I don't know if you've ever watched the germs movie, right? Um, And I forgot who starred in it, but uh, there was a movie made about the germs. And one of the guys in 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 the germs movie was my friend Rob Henley. And Rob Henley and um, and Darby started to have a relationship. I'm not sure if Darby was uh, was 100% gay or bisexual, or he, he's just horny like me. <laughs> so uh, 
him and Rob started to have a little fling together. And so Rob and I, Rob was my, my good friend uh, for, you know, since we were like 13 or whatever, we would hang out all the time. He would, he would actually, you know, kind of like kids hanging up, he'd sleep in the same bed with me. And obviously I'm not gay. But uh, so him and Darby started to started to have this thing going on. And so I hung out with the germs a lot. Okay. And they, you know, they took me in just like some, you know, some rat on the street. You know? <laughs> we would hang out and we saw a lot of movies with them. Okay. I mean, a lot of bands, a lot of uh, a lot of the, a lot of them playing at that time. Is this how you kind of got into punk rock? I think you were more of like a like a lot of the Black Flag crew were like a classic rock guy in the in the early 70s, mid 70s. Uh, yeah, you know, I was, I was into Kiss and Aerosmith and all of those types of things. Yeah. So, um, that's how sort of we got involved in it, but it was just with us, you know, uh, at that time, uh, we just wanted to be different, right? We didn't want to be like, uh, all the dudes with long hair and, and those types of things. Right. So, um, we just wanted to be different. So we shaved our heads, we had Mohawks and uh there was a time actually when when darby and rob had no place to go so um they actually came over to my mother's house in artesia and uh, darby spent the night i slept on the floor and darby and rob slept in my bed my bed my I had a, a room i have had a room about the size of this room right now that you see which is probably like 10 by 10 but it was partitioned off and it was partitioned off, and my brother, who was like a stoner, uh, lowrider, Bato dude, was in the other room next to me. And so we're in this little room with them. And then we woke up in the morning, and we started walking down the street, the three of us, Darby with this big blue mohawk. And uh, all these Vatos started throwing rocks at us and told us to get out of the neighborhood, you fucking freaks. So we started <laughs> running. So we actually ran to the bus stop and took the bus... Uh, up to Hollywood, down Crenshaw Boulevard. Crenshaw Boulevard is, I'm sure you're, everyone's familiar with Straight Outta Compton and all of those uh, movies that talk about it. So it was this bus line that went up through. Now we're in the, the, the Mexican part of gangland, and then we go up Crenshaw Boulevard with Darby. So it was kind of a remarkable story. So uh, Darby never came to my house again. <laughs> all right. Uh, how did you meet Greg and Chuck and the the black flag guys. Do you remember meeting? Them? Well, um, the church, the church was, uh, you know, just a place that, that people hung out with. Um, I'm sure everyone's seen the decline of the Western civilization. Uh, the movie sort of, um, going over that or, or making that the hallmark place where people met. And so, um, you know, uh, Rob and I at that time didn't really have a place to stay. Um, we were partners in crime. So we started to uh, we started to hang out there, and we met Greg and 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 um, and Dukowski there, and so we just started hanging out with them. And there wasn't a lot of people around. There was Red Cross, there was you know all these different other types of bands there, and we just you know maybe like they would play or they would practice there, and there would be like thirty of us just hanging out, drinking beer, and those types of things. The electronics business was still going at this point. Yeah, so there was the church, and we would sleep at the bottom of it, and then Greg had a little, a little shack next to it. The shack is still there, right? And so um, he would live there, 
and he had his electronics uh, uh, sort of company there. And I happened to be, um, you know, uh, curious of things. I still am curious of things. And so I, uh, he, he knew that I, you know, I, I, I like to work and I like to do things. I just didn't want to sleep all day. Chavo and, and, and Des and all those guys would sleep till, you know, two o'clock in the day. Right. But I was up, I was up, you know, when, you know, I was up at nine or 10 wanting to do something. So Greg had me uh, work on it in his electronics store, uh, soldering his tuners. So he understood that I, uh, you know, I had a spirit, a working spirit. Uh, uh, and so I started to work with them and SST electronics. And I was the only one there that worked with because the other people, the other people wanted to smoke pot and score chicks and those types of things. Right. Okay. And then pretty, pretty soon you're going on road trips to places like Seattle, Portland, Vancouver. Yeah. Our first road trip was actually to San Francisco. So we went up to San Francisco a few times, um, with uh, with this, I believe Chavo and and uh, or Ron Reyes and Robo were in the band at that time. So we made some trips up to San Francisco and now the infamous Portland. <laughs> Portland's Portland was Portland was crazy back then and it's fucking crazy now, right? And so to Portland and to Washington and then a, a couple of times to uh, to Canada. And also around this time is when. Black Flag is really coming into conflict with the LAPD. No, 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 no. I would say the other way around. <laughs> I would <laughs> no, I would say the LAPD is when the LAPD is when I mean this is still at the time when uh, we were playing at the Starwood and, and the Whiskey a Go Go and the and the crowds were pretty small. Uh, maybe a year or so later, um, or two years after this, uh, did um, we start having a lot more uh, crowds? And when the crowds got bigger, four to five hundred, it was much more difficult for the cops to maintain it, and that's when there was more problems. But at this time, it was more it was more like a bar scene, you know, and 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 and, and small concerts with about a hundred people or one hundred fifty people w- would be there. I guess that came a bit later, maybe like when you start renting out, you know, the Elks Lodge Hall and places like those. Yeah, it started to get it, when it when it got bigger, maybe a year later. And again, my, you know, my uh, my dates and and the chronological order of things going on is a little, you know, gets a little freaky here now because I'm getting older. But that's what I remember. Right. Now, at what point do you know when you came in on the label side of it? Well, the, the same thing, you know, um, I have, uh, cause I, I, I believe that I was the poorest out of all of them. You know, I had, a, a work ethic, um, just because coming out of poverty. Uh, and so, um, I started with the electronics company and then after that, um, you know, we, we had records, we had, people had to ship out the records. People had to box them up. People had to do the mail order. And I was the only, you know, one that just took an interest in it. So just by, you know, just by uh, the evolution of me and Greg, uh, I started to help him out on the label. I think it was maybe around 84 when you actually came in as a as a partner. Yeah, I'm not sure the exact date when I became a partner, um, but uh 
it, you know, it was about the time that, you know, we had we rented out a, a number of buildings, and at one point, uh, the record label just kept growing and growing. And at that time, uh, you know, I I I left for a while. Like one time, I went up to I went up to Canada, and I lived in Canada for about uh, about a month, oh. and. Uh, in Vancouver and so I went up there with a girl and the girl kind of fell in love with this other guy and I was just stranded like living wherever I could we, we used to go we used to go there and we think there was a beer strike at the time and we would go steal beer you know uh, and so it was pretty but at that point you know it started to get cold and I, I ran out of options so I was able to convince the girl that um, I don't know if you, I don't know if you know the guy called X Head, but X Head was in um, was in the decline of the Western civilization. He had an X on his head, and that was his girlfriend. And I lied to her and I said that he died, and that uh, on his deathbed he said he loved her and he wanted her to go to the funeral. So then we we came back on a dot in a Datsun B210 from Canada back to California. So I felt at home, but I was pretty scared. You know, I had nothing there, and I didn't have a lot of, you know, just it's just the punk scene, and some people would take me in. So it was just these houses that I would live in. So, and so I did other things like that at the time, and when I left, nothing happened, right? So in Greg's mind, you know, what the fuck's going to go on with me not being there? Who's going to do anything? We don't have any money to pay anyone. This guy, this guy's working for free, and I would work. You know, I would work uh, 10 hours a day, you know, and then go party at night, wake up in the morning and work 10 hours a day. So that's that's kind of how it worked. But another thing that I that, that has been mentioned um, and I didn't really think about this, but we put up we put up tons of flyers um, all over the place. Right. And so we would get the wallpaper paste and we had Raymond Pettibone's flyers and and all those flyers now um, are just big business. Everyone's, you know, talking right. about them and looking at them. And a lot of them I made, you know, I put the you know, you had the scratch on um, um, scratch on uh, letters. Right. And so you would put it on a piece yeah. of paper and then you would paste it on it. And then we'd go down to this place in Torrance and we'd make massive amounts of them. And this was before I was the owner. So we used to go out, <laughs> we used to go out to high schools in Orange County and all of these in, in Palos Verdes and all of these different places. And we would, we would go by the high schools and we'd put the flyers on, on, you know, on the telephone poles and we would, we would do runs every night at night at like, you know, we'd go at 11 o'clock and we'd get a map, the Thomas guide, and we'd go and we'd put flyers on all of these, all of these high school. And in fact, if you go around 30 years later, there's still these high schools that, that, that we did. And so we had this freaky, uh, you know, Raymond Pettibone, uh, a flyer that's out on the school. People would go by and they would look at it and they go, wow, this is different. So although we didn't change people's perspective about punk rock, but I, I believe we altered it. We altered it in, a, in a search, such a way that people in high school said, you know, we were kind of trying to indoctrinate them into punk right. rock, and I believe we did. And not only did we do it in in Southern California, we went up to, um, we went up to um, uh, Santa Barbara and other cities that are, you know, maybe 100 miles away, and before 
a concert there, we would go up, we would go out there and we would do it. They would send me up to San Francisco. And I believe this is in Henry's book, right? If you read Henry's book in the van, we would, Henry and I would go up to San Francisco and we would, pa- we would go to gigs and we would pass out flyers and then we would sleep in the van uh, at night and in the morning we would put up flyers. We would, you know, take the, the, the wallpaper paint and put the flyers back up. So we were just always doing something to promote the band at that time and they just knew that I was an asset that they couldn't get, couldn't, couldn't get away with uh, so, you know, that's when they gave me a third, a third partnership in the label, but there wasn't, you know, it was just probably at that time, uh, the Minutemen and, and Saccharin Trust. And mostly it was, it was bands at that time that were, um, that were local bands. You actually got arrested one time for flyering. Yeah, I got arrested. <laughs> I don't know how you know that, but I got arrested. It was actually, uh, by, um, not the Starwood, but there's another club in, on on Sunset Boulevard, uh, the Troubadour. So we were outside the Troubadour, and we were we were going. It was actually Robo and I, and we were putting up flyers down Sunset Boulevard, and we were, we were, we were at the right at Beverly Hills, and this Beverly Hills cop saw us, and they threw us in this drunk tank. So it was Robo and I in the drunk tank, and I was wearing kind of I. You know, I was a punker, but I was wearing board shorts and a T-shirt and bands at the time, kind of like what I wear now. I haven't changed my style. Maybe I should. But anyways, um, we were there and there was this big black guy and I had a cut in my short. I had a cut in my shorts and this big black guy came up to me and he said, um, he looked at me and he's just huge. And he goes, hey, uh you know, last night there was this, there was a white dude and he jumped in the window and he stole my stereo and he jumped out my window and I slid him with my, I slid him with my knife and he, now he has a, and he had a cut on his shorts. Where did you get that cut on your shorts? I go, bro, I wasn't trying to rob your stereo. And he goes, here, you can make it up. Come and suck my dick. (laughs) <laughs> and I go, bro, I'm not, I'm, he goes, I'm going to kick your fucking white ass. And at that point, uh, they called Robo. Greg Ginn came in and, and uh, bailed us out. So at that point, you know, we were bailed out. But I was that close to, uh, you know, I would have I fucking bit it off, you know. I mean, because he could have just kicked the hell out of me. But what would you do if some big old black guy said, suck my dick, right? <laughs> That's the scary part. So all the punkers that are listening to this, don't get thrown in jail in L.A. because you might have to suck some dude's cock. <laughs> so then the damaged record comes out and that takes you over to Europe. I'm assuming that's the first time you'd ever been overseas. Uh, yeah, um, I believe we went there. I probably went there four or five times with them, I would guess. I don't actually remember um, the amount of number of times, but we went on a couple of just English tours. I believe we, we toured with Exploited uh, at that time, and uh, it was just me and Black Flag, so I, I would... I would, you know, on the tours, I would usually, in the beginning tours, I would drive at night. I mean, we had it where we would drive, and then we'd get to the next town, um, and they would sleep in the van. 
and then I would drive at night and then um, take them to the spot and then and then load the equipment in and then I would sleep during the day and then you know I mix their sound uh, and then we we would get up and leave go to the next town and we also did that on a couple of tours of England and then we then did a couple of tours on the continent too so um, they were they were very aggressive and. Uh, the number of cities they went to and, and how they did it. But it was all reliant on me, uh, you know, driving the car and, and setting up the stuff for them and working with them. Now, what was your involvement in the in the whole unicorn debacle? Were you involved in, in that or what were you doing during that downtime? You know, we were still at that at that point in, uh, as you would call the debacle, we uh, hired uh, Joe Carducci. Right. So Joe Carducci was our, uh, still a good friend of mine. He comes over, stays at my house. Um, um, he's living in Illinois now. Um, but we hired him. And so we were still at that point, uh, we were promoting um, we were promoting the label. Right. So we were working at the label. Joe was doing a lot of work. And so we were living actually in the Unicorn building at that time. They had two buildings. They had the recording. And then they and then they had the building. So we uh, did uh, <laughs> we did an all-out assault on her, uh, a media assault that you would see now. We put ads in the local uh, classified ads saying that you know the uh, woman for hire and all kinds of things <laughs> that are that would be uh, totally against the law. But you know we started to do a grassroots campaign against her. And so I was sort of instrumental in, in figuring out ways to, you know, to try to have her stop what she was doing. I've heard it said on a few occasions that certain people have the opinion that Greg was thinking he would like Black Flag to jump to a, a bigger label. Do you think there's any truth to that? Did you ever hear him talk about that? Yeah, he talked about that, you know, and he, he believed that uh, at that point that uh, SST could not was not big enough for uh, Black Flag. That's why he put him on Unicorn, right? And so Greg is the type of person to, um, you know, he 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 makes friends very easily. He's very um, open to new people and to what they say. And Greg and his dad and his brother. I mean, Raymond will give if you go to Raymond's house, he will give you he will give you his best painting. Right. So their family is a very giving family. And so is Greg. But once he gets to know you, right, any friend that he's ever made has. And if you look throughout history, have become his enemy. Right. So he somehow is this like Dr. Heckle and Mr. Je Mr. Hyde type of a person where he befriends you and then he gets to know you and then he automatically doesn't like you. Right. Mm -hmm. So that was that's what happened with Daphne. And Daphne was the owner of, of Unicorn. So at that point, you know, the whole major label thing where Greg is, you know, the typical American uh, uh, type of a person that does not want to be told what to do. He doesn't. I don't know if that's an American trait. Is it a Canadian trait? But uh, he does not want to anyone to tell them what to do or how to do things, right? If you notice that there's a, a lot of times that there are very smart people and Greg is probably, uh, his IQ is higher than anyone that I, I, I know. Um, and so 
these smart people like his dad, his dad built his own house, right? So these smart people want to do things themselves. And that's where the whole DIY thing came out was Greg doing his own thing. So he thought that the major label would be would do good for him. But after the whole episode with Daphne and Unicorn, I mean, this woman was, you know, just kind of like a rich woman that wanted to start a major label and it didn't work out. So we believed at that point that we could do a better job uh, than her and a major label. Were you ever living at the Ginn's house? Well, and again, in, in Henry's book, Henry talks about a shack in the back where he lived, if you look right. at yeah. in, in the van. But before Henry came uh, to uh, SST, um, I, um, I lived in that shack before him, right? And so in that shack, there was like back before there was porn, uh, magazines. They had these pictures of girls in bikinis and stuff in the 50s and the 60s. And, and Mr. Ginn had all of these books back there. And I would look at him and jerk off. <laughs> it was my first uh, introduction to porn. Right? So, so uh, I remember those books. So Henry probably saw some shots of, of, of semen on them. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, I, and I, I could show you a picture um, of, of Greg's sister. Uh, I forgot Greg's sister name. Anyway, she took a picture of me, Robo, um, Greg, and Greg's parents, and Greg, a couple of Greg's Greg's nephews or a niece uh, that uh, were in a picture. So it was kind of classic. Greg's sister sent it to me. And I go, wow, look at that. And I'm wearing a leather jacket and I have a skin hat. So. <laughs> and I used to go over there. I mean, we didn't have a shower and, and I was hungry. I would go over there and I would eat. And Mrs. Ginn, you know, uh, treat, treated me like uh, I was her kid, right? So she gave me, you know, food, go take shower. I would Sometimes I would sleep uh, when Henry came by. And I was feeling a little down. I would go there and there, Mr. Ginn made all of these rooms in the back where Pettibone slept in one, but I, I used to sleep on the floor in another one when Henry was in the back. And it was just kind of like, you see, my room is filled with books. It was just books, you know, it was just books all over the place, right? And you would just sleep there and you could, you know, you could smell them. You could smell the old books in there. Yeah, but they took me in like a kid, right? And they gave me anything in terms of food, you know, anything that we wanted. And as you know, right, they also invested a lot in SST. So when we didn't have money, we would we would borrow it from them. Greg would borrow it from them, and then we would we would use that money. So they invested a lot, but we paid them back. Okay, I've heard you mention that all four of the owners had to agree on a release to get SST to put it out. And I've heard you talk about a few that you had to pass on, specifically suicidal tendencies. Do you know, yeah. would that have been like the first Suicidal Tendencies record? Yeah, yeah. All I wanted was a Pepsi. Yeah, it was that, yeah. It was that record. And I know Mike Muir very well. I hung out with him. We, we uh, scored chicks together. So uh, I befriended him. And Greg, uh, Greg, didn't want, di- Greg didn't want it. And I believe that, that Greg did not want somebody to overshadow him or, or you know, make, be better than him. And I believe that's the conflict between him and Henry, right? Is that Henry started to become a budding star, and I, I, 
uh, I felt that Greg was jealous of that because people wanted to interview him and not um, people wanted to interview uh, Henry and not Greg. So I believe Greg became a little jealous where Greg's the smartest and coming up with all, and, you know, it's coming up with, I mean, they basically made Henry's, uh, they made Henry's, um, um, you know, style and the way he was, they, 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 you know, he, they basically, he, they modeled him. And right. so now this little monster started to get, uh, have the, you know, become part of the, you know, everyone was, wanted to talk to him and Craig got jealous of that. So were you one of the people that was of the belief that, the group lost some of its spirit when Chuck left the band? Oh, I, I, I think that, uh, it's like a lot of things, you know, I believe, um, uh, you know, it's it, in the beginning, they were young. It's like the best mathematicians and the best songs are made by people when they're young. And so, um, I, I just think that, you know, it's like they lost, they lost their luster as they got big, their, their brain cells, um, started to, um, <laughs> disseminate right so i just think that you know it just become like a lot of other bands that you know the songs are sort of a um a cop a carbon copy of something else so they really lost their spirit uh before chuck left so from the standpoint of someone who saw probably close to every lineup if not all of them you know the chuck biscuits era has been kind of mythologized do you have a have an opinion on which lineup was the best? It's um, my opinion of that. It's kind of like, it's kind of like, do you prefer Thai food, Chinese food, Italian food, or or you know German food or whatever type of food you are? I liked all of the lineups, and they all had they all had a uh, a greatness to them, right? The Henry lineup, the Des lineup, the Chavo lineup, and the and the and uh, um, Chris Morris lineup were all, to me, were all amazing. So um, just the, in the end, the Henry, the Henry lineup started to, you know, it's, it's, it's like a team, right? And we've seen, we've seen great teams in sports and we see great teams uh, in other places. But the problem is, is that that team starts to have conflict in it. And in the end, and, and what Greg did in the past is he would kick out, he would kick out the members of the team that didn't do good and then he would draft another one like a great coach in sports right, right. they would try to have the, the chemistry but in the end he had he had um he had henry and 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 chuck and it's hard to you know it's hard to get rid of you know one of the founders of the of the of the band and so the the spirit was lost after that but all of the bands all of the lineups were great and all the drummers and all the players were really good so at what point do you realize you maybe have a, a knack for accounting and start going back to school? Uh, you know, in, in the beginning, uh, you know, what we learned, what, what I have learned is that, um, you, you know, you need to, you know, you need to have some sort of sophistication in accomplishing goals. And so we, I uh, overran my talents in terms of, trying to uh, conduct the business. And so we hired some people, we hired some CPAs and we hired some other people, but they, you know, they're just like any other hired hand. They're gonna come in, we hired all these people and they would come in and they would work nine to five and then it's like, adios, bro, right? And so we're working 12 and 14 hours a day and we expected that from other people. 
And so when these people came in, you know, these lawyers and these accountants and all these other people, and they just have no, you know, no backbone. They just wanted to get out and, and take a long lunch and, and just put in what it takes. So I believe in order for us to get anywhere, I needed to learn more about business and, and that types of things. And so that's what I that's what I went up and I did. And I tried to do that for the band. I mean, at this point, we were a team, all of us, and we were working together on you know one goal and that is to make a good a great label and but we couldn't find the talent we couldn't pay for the talent a lot's been made of the black flag work ethic and you were certainly a part of that is it something greg talked about and tried to instill in people or was it more just like a leading by example thing yeah it's like it's like uh leaders are learners you know leaders are readers uh, uh leaders set an example and it wasn't the it wasn't the black flag work work ethic. It was Greg's work work ethic, and kind of like Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, all of these great entrepreneurs. He was an entrepreneur, and so he led by example. And the people that left Black Flag, right, were people that did could not, you know, you know, weren't interested in working. Like Chuck Biscuits came in, and and he would not put up a flyer. He would not do. He wouldn't do crap. And he would uh, just sit on the couch and eat um, eat candy all day, right? So you know, he just he just didn't fit in. And so, not to not to say that all Canadians are like that, but you know, he did not fit in with us because of the work ethic, right? And so we go, hey, let's go put up flyers. Hey, let's do something. So it was Greg's work ethic, and certain of us would want that work ethic, but others couldn't deal with it. Like Des couldn't tour. Right. It just wore him out. He wasn't strong enough person to be able to go on this grueling tour schedule and people would get sick. Right. And so Greg and I would never get sick, you know, and so all these people would get sick and I can't play and these types of things. So some of the people just maybe mentally they couldn't uh, they couldn't keep up. And some people physically, you know, they just did not have the physical capability of, you know, doing this dragging tour, going to these different towns and just being able to fight off a, you know, a simple, a simple cold. Tell me if you can, this might be an op- too much of an open-ended question, but tell me about the most infamous Nig Heist show that comes to mind. <laughs> well, the most, the most, the most infamous show was, um, was, and there's uh, an article on this in Denver, but we played in Denver uh, in, uh, in, I think it was Terry Faze, who's a famous rock promoter in Denver. And so uh, it was awesome. You know, we got on the stage and every night uh, on tours, I was, you know, usually able to pick up on some chick, right? So we had the, we had the chicks lined up. We had where we're staying that night. And so it was a classic rock and roll experience so um uh and so after after we would play you know we would get the next bands ready and i believe the minutemen were with us at this time and so um we got on the stage and we took off our clothes uh you know we did our whole nick heist twist and then i went back i went back into uh and i started to mix black flag uh, uh live sound and so when i was done the cops were there Right. And the cops were there and they said, hey, you're coming with me. And so um, we went with them 
and they threw us in jail, you know, in the Denver jail. And Tom Tricoli, which was who was the bass player who just got on the stage naked. Uh, um, and he was a t total deadhead. He had some weed with him at the time, right? And so his weed was in his sock. So they didn't even imagine that they uh, they didn't even ch they didn't even pat us down. They just put the handcuffs in and they threw us in jail. And so we were in sort of waiting at the police station, and he was able to take the pot out of the sock and throw it in a plant a a, a plant uh, a planter, you know. And so that was. So about maybe around three o'clock in the morning, Greg was able to uh, take us out of jail or put the money in or whatever. So I believe there's still a, a arrest warrant in Denver for me for for fornic uh, for simulating anal intercourse. I'd like to <laughs> I'd like to I'd like to say just one more. There's two. I don't mind. I don't know if we have enough time, but um, of course. Uh, when we were we were in Amsterdam, right, and we were playing and we. We got on our wigs, and I got on the stage, and I go, "Watch your, watch your girlfriends, because we're gonna fuck them," or some sort of, you know, uh, antidote that I would say at that time. And uh, uh, and so um, the, there was a bunch of skinheads, and they started throwing shit at us and booing us, right? And get off the stage, you fucking hippies! So we ran back. We ran back into the backstage. And, and I had a you know short hair at the time, probably as short as I have now. And I threw off my wig, and I put on my T-shirt and my jeans and my and my Vans. And I said, "Yeah, where are the where are those fucking hippies?" <laughs> <laughs> and I was able to escape the skinhead. So after that, we just played in our in our in our Levi's and and T-shirts and and tennis shoes and. It wasn't as it, it wasn't as great as putting on the the, the, the costumes. <laughs> <laughs> While Black Flag is on the road, when you eventually come off the road, you yourself, you and Joe Carducci are kind of really getting things cooking at the label. Some of the big releases are coming out, like Double Nickels on the Dime and Zen Arcade. Was it around this time you really started to expand the label and hire some other people? Yeah, at this point, um, we, we started to have uh, a specialization of trade, right? So I would basically do the manufacturing um, and the accounting, and I would call the, you know, I would call the distributors. Joe was more on production of the art covers and working with the bands. And so at this point, we started to hire people to help me with the mail order, people to help him calling the record labels. So we hired some, we hired some good people and some bad people. You know, one of the good people that we hired at the time was a guy by the name of Ray Farrell, mm -hmm. right? And Ray Farrell joined us, and he, you know, he had some experience. And so we told him that we would pay him a thousand dollars a month, I believe, at the time, or maybe it was five hundred. But anyways, it was something, and we thought it was a month. And then when he came in. He thought we were quoting him. We were going to pay him a, a, a weekly salary. So the <laughs> the amount of money in our minds was just so so different in the negotiation. So we had you know we were hiring people, and we were having people do the work right. And so we were we were at that time we were very productive. But what I would also like to say at this time is that I was in control of the money. I was in control of the money until I left. 
So at this point, you know, we had a uh, a very good reputation of paying the bands. So we, you know, it's kind of like we would pay out all of our money and we would, you know, sign new bands and give them an, an advance. And we try to do it within budget. And then any of the money that was left over, I would just, you know, if let's say we owed, uh, you know, these bands, this amount of money, you know, like we had 10 bands, I would just take a percentage of how much we owed them. And then I would you know, off of how much we owe them based on the amount of money left over, based on the aggregate of owing them all, and then I would pay them out, you know. So people started to get money, and the reputation, uh, you know, it's kind of like Snoop Dogg and, and Dr. Dre saying, we're on the label that pays me, right? And their famous, uh, I forgot the, the song. Um, but we, you know, our bands at that point, you know, started to respect us because we were paying them, right? And so we were able at that point to sign Sonic Youth and some of the other and Bad Brains because they know they knew at the time that they, we had a good reputation of paying. Right. Okay, I've had a hard time tracking down some of the people that were actually involved in working at SST, so I'm wondering if I can pick your brain about some of them. Sure. Can you tell me about Kara Nix and how she came on board and what she would have done at the label? Um. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I believe we met Kara Nix on tour in, in Arizona. Uh, and so she just kind of sort of joined us in the van, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, she had a personality as big as, you know, as Donald Trump, right? And and so um, we liked her. Not to say that, that I like Donald Trump, but I'm just saying that she had a good personality and maybe Trump is the wrong person to compare her to. But anyway, she just started hanging out and she would come over to the label. I actually, uh, you know, was with her for maybe, uh, uh a week. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, she befriended us. And so she started just doing things, you know? So with her, it was just sort of osmosis. It just happened. Right. And so now I believe she's in in um, I believe she's in like uh, Tennessee or or Oklahoma or some city like that. And she got in a car accident. I believe her. She hurt her back. Right. So now she's a, she's kind of out of it in the sense that um, um, we haven't seen her on Facebook or anything else. Right. Uh, what about Rich Ford? Rich Ford um, was in. Rich Ford helped Greg. I'm sorry. Rich Ford helped Joe Carducci, and uh, you know he was sort of had an art artist background, so he started to um, work on the album covers and do more of the art side of things. And so Rich um, had Rich had uh, he was more of a we would call him lifestylers, meaning that he was sort more of a you know probably came from a wealthy family. I would guess. I'm not a hundred percent sure. But I believe he answered an ad and he, he worked, he was on one of Dukowski's um, project, band projects. And so he was around for a while. He dated this. He had this just beautiful wife that he met somehow. And, and, and he, they broke up. That's what I remember about him. And then he sort of just fell away from what we were doing. And I, I think he just left. And I, he left because... You know, we were sort of the, you know, the working class, 
you know, hard workers. And I think the whole work ethic thing, he didn't fit in as well as the other people. Uh, Linda Trudnik. <laughs> uh, my goodness. Again, uh, you know, both Kara and Linda were, you know, I hired them because uh, of, you know, relationship that I had with them had with them so um i dated her for a while and so did um so did uh, uh raymond pettibone right and so she worked at the firm uh and so she got into the whole hollywood scene um so she also she worked for a while but she didn't fit into the label she smoked she was a heavy smoker and uh, hers was just not a fit with the record label, and so she uh, she quit and moved to Hollywood. Michael Whitaker, who recently passed away. Yeah, Michael Whitaker was, uh, I, I called him, um, what was the name that I, my nickname Spaceman. for him? Spaceman, yeah. So <laughs> uh, I came up with that nickname for Spaceman. We hired him, uh, again, for um, where both... Uh, Kara and Linda were more on the infrastructure part of the business. Um, Spaceman um, was, you know, would help out in uh, the record label part of it. Spaceman, all those, you know, Spaceman was Spaceman. He would, he would talk for hours to to you, but uh, and he he would call the he would call the radio stations about bands that were coming up. So he's more of, you know, on the A and R side of of the house. Uh, he, although he was a spaceman and he was very intellectual and a smart guy, um, he lasted more than most of them um, because he fit in in the sense that, you know, he was just a very likable guy, right? Everyone liked him. And until he died, everyone still liked him, you know? Yeah. Uh, Naomi Peterson. Naomi Peterson, uh, if we read uh, Joe's book uh, about her, right, he wrote a book, a pretty good book about her so she was a mm -hmm. photographer she uh took photos of the bands um she was really good at it she had an art of it and you know at that point um you know joe would joe liked naomi um, um and when was really into her and sometimes he would push he would push her onto onto record labels that sometimes maybe people didn't want it as much um, but she started to go with some of the heavy metal guys. I'm not sure of some of the bands that she were working with, but she dated, she dated a lot of the guys in the bands. We also, I also had a number of, of, of illegal immigrants that I would hire, uh, that worked in the, uh, in the mail order department, right? No, I'm sorry, in the shipping and receiving so I put in a computer system and, and, and I computerized everything back then. And, and, you know, we had a, you know, we, we basically had a factory going on and we were, we were pumping out a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of music at the time. Were you having a hard time at getting paid from distributors? It seemed to be a common problem that a lot of indie labels had at that time. Well, no, we, we, cause we kept putting out other, other, uh, we kept putting out other, um, other uh, albums at the time and so as we're putting out we say hey if you're not going to pay us right uh, we're not going to give you this next album so it was kind of like we we were so prolific and putting out things that they didn't have a choice so we got paid just because they needed our new stuff so with us 
And so maybe we took the money from other other companies because, you know, we had, you know, we had the band, we had the label at the time that was producing a lot. All right. It's been said that the four of you kind of, you and Greg and Chuck and Joe kind of split into two camps. Things got worse, I think, when Black Flag came off the road permanently and that you and Joe in particular were maybe not into some of the the artist choices that started to be put forward at that time? Yes. Yeah. So we had some problems with, uh, and it wasn't the artist. It was the amount of money we were, we were paying for them to, um, to put out their label. And then again, it comes back to Greg's personality, Greg's personality in the beginning with people that he first meets, just like his, his brother. I mean, they would give you, uh, they would give you their firstborn, right? They would give you anything. So there was these new labels, new bands that were coming in, and he would just give them, uh, you know, a, a big bone, a big sign-on bonus, and all of this. And we disagreed with it. And again, we did not want to, uh, you know, we wanted to have enough money left over at the end to pay the artists. So it was, it wasn't just about our musical differences, which there was a lot of musical differences, and now it became 50-50. So we disagreed with something, but we didn't always, just didn't always disagree. We disagreed with the amount of money. So it became uh, managing the company, and Joe and I are more fiscal conservatives, where Greg and and Chuck were more uh, liberal with the money, and so I controlled the money at the time. And so it became sort of a conflict with them. And that's where they started the cruise label and some other things to counter what we were doing. What about the quantity of records? Because it was around 1987 where the the number of releases just went through the roof. Yeah. So at that point in time, um, you know, we, you know, I was able to put in a system of, of making the records, of distributing the records, of coming up with the computer system, of, uh, and Joe and I worked through, the, you know, uh, making the masters, uh, doing the art thing. We had a number of people that were, that, that were college art students that came in and started to help out with the production of it. So we, so we mastered the, the you know, the, we mastered the making of a record. Right. So at that point, it was very easy for somebody to put something out. And in the past, right, we only had so many resources. So because of the shortage of resources, we can only do so much. So at that point, right, we just became so easy because of the of the of the factory that we put into place. So at that point, Greg just wanted to put out Greg wanted to put out everything. And so it became a supply and demand. We had too many too many of records that were selling like a thousand copies of each and we were paying these people ten thousand dollars so they were in debt to us so that's when it just became to me unmanageable right and also the you know the uh, the work ethic at that point with other people because of the you know the smoking of pot and you know uh, drinking and stuff like that these people like greg and chuck uh, started not to become as productive as they were in the past. So I'm, I'm the only one at this point. I'm the only one that has the work ethic at this point. I'm the only one that's working. I'm the one that's there first in the, in, in the morning and I'm the last one to leave. Everyone else is, uh, you know, at home smoking weed and, and doing whatever they're doing. So, you know, you, you kind of feel bitter at that point where I felt bitter that, 
you know, I have the work ethic. I put this in place. I mean, I put the factory in place. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. it's uh, it's Gin's idea. It's all of Gin's entrepreneurial spirit. But it's kind of like uh, uh, in the in the case of, of of in the case of Apple, they kicked out Steve Jobs, right? In the case of SST, they kicked out the the person that's behind the scenes, right? So if we would have kicked out Greg, like Apple kicked out Steve Jobs, right? We would have been able to keep the the we would have been able to have the growth that we had and the quality of of, of bands and keeping the bands that were you know keeping the Husker Do's and the Sonic Youth and the Bad Brains and all of these and the Minutemen and all of well the Minutemen stopped going but all of these other bands that were doing so well we could have kept those catalogs as opposed to having this you know what what happened to it you know imploding do you think having the two separate locations by this point sst and then global did that contribute also to the the divide no that 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 actually made it better because it's kind of like a divorce in the sense of of a divorce we did not see them uh, they weren't around, you know, at this point, like in a divorce, right. Um, you know, you start to hate the people. And so, um, they started to hate us. <laughs> they hate us. We hate them. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, you know, people, it, it just become, it just became a, you know, an argument. And, and so there were people throwing spears at us. And so they had their, their, their army of people that, you know, got into the rhetoric of the time that was going on. And so it just became, it became at that point unmanageable. Around 86, Joe Carducci leaves. I think Ray Farrell left in 88. Do you know when, when you got bought out or when, when you left the label? Oh, it was probably like, so at that point, you know, we had the two factions and then when Joe, Joe just couldn't, you know, Joe just couldn't deal with um, the friction that was going on. Um, Joe couldn't deal with uh, with this, um, you know, this my war type of uh, uh, a system that was in place. And so um, he left. So at that point, I believe that that Joe was more of uh, uh, of an intellectual type where he wanted certain bands. He wanted to do a certain style of music. Uh, and so, um, at that point it was like two sides, 50, 50, he left. Now it's just one, you know, we, oh, we, uh, it was one third. So, you know, it's, it's at that point, you know, I couldn't do anything. You know, I, I had no uh, input into the music they were playing and I had, and I had, uh, you know, I still controlled the money at that time. I was still paying bands. But the amount of money that was being paid out for other things, I couldn't say no because it was it was two thirds against a third. After you left the label, what did you do next? You went back to school full time, I think. Yeah, I went back to school full time. And so uh, I went to Cal State Long Beach. Uh, I, I don't have an accounting degree. I have a, 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 a business degree, right, in business management. And then I, and then I had a, I got a master's degree in, uh, basically in quantitative research, kind of like the whole big thing now uh, that we hear about artificial intelligence. Well, that's what I was, you know, studying basically statistics, and artificial intelligence when it was called quantitative systems at the time. I mean, they put new, new term. You know, it's like uh, uh, IT used to be called data processing and. And artificial intelligence, which was called quantitative research. 
Okay. So that was my master's degree was in was in quantitative research. I've heard you say before that you regret selling your your share in the label. Do you still feel that way? Uh, yeah, I, I, I regret it. Right. But the problem is, is that it's kind of like an organism. Right. So if I would have been still there, the band, the label would have been much different. Right. As it is, as it as it is today. Right. So. Yeah, of course I regret it, right? It's worth, it's probably worth, uh, I would say 100 million, right? I would guess I could be wrong, right? Or maybe 50 million if he sold out. So uh, I'm worth a tenth of that. So the value that I would have had um, in that scenario would have been, would have been, um, would have been uh, much more. But, you know, you, it's like something that I had to do. It's a part of me growing. You know, you have to, you have to leave, you know, at this point, it was like, Charles Manson type of thing. I had to leave the family, right? Otherwise, I would have not grown personally. And I needed, at that point, you know, I believed that I couldn't do the things that I wanted to do and I needed to grow on my own. And you did. I think, you know, you've been <laughs> very successful after since well, the yeah. label. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've done a lot, you know, um, and so I've, I've, I've been successful. But, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Uh, we could have hit other things, but you know, to, to the best of them, right? <laughs> yeah. Mugger, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Really do appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Um, I hope you like my stories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, people will like them. Yeah, I hope people like them. Um, and so um, invite me back if you like. <laughs> I will, for sure. Okay, buddy. Take care. Yeah, really appreciate it. Take care, man. Bye. All right. Bye. All right, some great info that we've ne we've never uncovered before. So super, super cool to have Mugger on the show and uh, spend some time with us for sure. Yeah, my favorite parts are like getting getting the germs in on the podcast a little bit, some germ yep. stuff, but also like um, the thing about suicidal tendencies. Like I love, you know, suicidal tendencies. So. Uh, it would have been so cool to have that first record on SST. Yeah. What did it come out on again? Was it a Frontier thing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And what did they end up putting the rest of their stuff out on? Like, oh. was it Enigma stuff? No. Uh, what's Join the Army on? Maybe Combat or one of those oh, metal yeah, labels. Yeah. But then they went to a major label for yeah, yeah. How Will I Laugh Tomorrow. Yeah. But anyways, thanks to Mugger for being on the show been trying to nail down mugger for a couple years now so it was great that he finally relented to my nagging <laughs> <laughs> yeah well you know what for people who are actually there there ain't that many left so yeah. it's it's uh it's an honor to have uh someone like mugger on and to share their story uh with us every single time we're able to snag someone it's a big deal well you heard me asking about some of the people like those are people i want to have on the show so Again, Kara Nix, uh, Rich Ford, if you're listening to this, send us an email, mojackpod at gmail.com. Yeah, man, we want to tell the story, that's for sure. Yep. All right, Ryan, this Descendants Two Things at Once comp. Let's talk about the artwork. History Lesson Part Two. Lay it on me. There's not really much to talk about. Uh, it's basically a blue cover with the Milo Goes to College and Bonus Fat covers on it. It's got the lyrics in, inside. 
for yeah. <laughs> as I mentioned last week, all the years that I've had this record, I I never listened to the lyrics. And I think subconsciously that was intentional. I didn't want to know that maybe the actual lyrics. Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, probably part of it was for me anyways, like my the first time I got this was definitely like a dub on cassette where there was no lyrics. And then, you know, a few years later, I saved up $30 or whatever it cost to buy this CD and got it. And I was like, ah, I know all those songs. Why should I read the lyrics? Yeah, that's probably what it was for me too. I think we can head over to the ballot result, hey? Whoa, 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 whoa. What am I missing? Whoa, Brant. There's no I got, dead wax. No, but I got one final Spaceman spiel for you. Oh, great. Yeah, we got some Whitaker word truth bombs here, okay? So here's what he said in the SST catalog about two things at once. Here we go. A feisty one-two punch from the Descendants on this special release. The power pummel of Bonus Fat and Milo Goes to College makes this the unregistered weapon of the year. <laughs> the Spaceman never disappoints, hey? Exactly. You cannot. You cannot move past that. Seven fifty US on cassette. Thirteen dollars US on CD. Boom. Yeah. Spaceman gets some love from Mugger too in the interview. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Well deserved love. Yeah. Now, Brant, now it is time for the ballot result. Ballot result. Yeah, sorry for jumping the gun there, Ryan. I was just it's been picking my ass for three weeks now that we put Mayage on instead of Hope or Bikeage. So I've been I've been waiting for this moment for three weeks. That's okay. You're 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 a well known gun jumper. That's <laughs> so you better pick. Because I want to stay friends. Okay. Well, it's going to be one of two, those two songs, okay? Mm-hmm. You can pick My, which one. Which one? Bikeage or Hope. Oh, well. Ugh, that's hard. I know. I like, I like the melody and Hope better. But, I mean, you should really pick. Because I don't... I, I feel like... Didn't I get Ride the Wild last episode? Yeah, you got Ride the Wild. And then <laughs> you got My Edge, too. See? You pick. Go for it. I'm trying to think if you got the I don't want to grow up, too. We got to go. Hey, hey, dude. Okay, look. Out of the loud, here we go. This is why you have to pick it, okay? Okay? So if I picked two already and there are four episodes, we got we to gotta keep this. Wait for it. 50-50, bro. <laughs> Get it? Yeah, we don't want to go 50-70. That's right. This is a, that's a prequel for the Enjoy record. 50-50, bro. You pick. Right. Uh, let's go with a song called Hope. Nice. You can never go wrong with that one. Yep. All right. Ryan, what's next week? Next week, I feel like we're going to get a little swa. It is SST 146, the Sylvia Juncosa record, Nature. And Brent, we've got a special guest. Oh, you bet we do. Sylvia Juncosa's on the show. Nice. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. 
If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.